it's the privilege of the work that we do as documentary filmmakers, particularly this kind of work that demands so much trust from your subjects. You have to ensure that you respect that trust and them and that they are not actors. They're real people whose lives continue and go on and beyond the film. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and joining me today on the podcast is going to be filmmaker Jesse Moss, whose new film, Boy State, is out right now on Apple TV+. If you want to watch Boy State, which I'd strongly recommend, you should uh, subscribe to Apple TV Plus for a few dollars per month. Or uh, if you bought an Apple device any time in the last year, you get a free year of Apple TV Plus. Uh, so that's how you can watch Boy State. Uh, but either way, I think uh, you'll hopefully enjoy this conversation regardless. Uh, and also, if you want to hear more about Boy State, you can find my review of the film over on the Slash Filmcast, one of my other podcasts. But before we get to any of that, uh, I do just want to call out the fact that I launched a Patreon a couple weeks ago at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. And uh, I want to say it's been super heartwarming, super gratifying, super humbling to receive all the support that I've received from people uh, who are backing me, you know, ostensibly to support Culturally Relevant and my YouTube channel, but really just to support me as a creator. If you are one of those people who are backing me on Patreon and listening to this right now, thanks so much. Uh, it has been, honestly, the, the emotion I would use to describe it is a relief, you know, because I spent so much time trying to create content that's going to catch people's attention and that's going to grow my audience. And creating Patreon has kind of changed the whole dynamic for me. You know, I, I no longer feel like I need to get everyone's attention. I just need to, I just need to make the patrons on my Patreon page happy uh, with what I'm making, and that means so much. It just it just takes a huge kind of load off. Like I no longer need to like worry about um, whether you know the guests I'm getting are going to be the most popular or the widest reaching on the internet. Instead, I can just get guests that I think are going to be interesting and compelling. I can make videos that I think are going to be interesting and compelling. It's super liberating. And uh, if you want to help me make more things, including this podcast, please head on over to Patreon.com/slash/DaveChen. Probably going to shout that Patreon link out uh, every single episode from this point forward. So please start getting used to it. But patreon.com slash Dave Chen is where you can support me. All right, let's get to today's episode. My guest today is documentary filmmaker Jesse Moss. He's the director of films such as Full Battle Rattle and Speedo, A Demolition Derby Story. His 2014 film, The Overnighters, was shortlisted at the Academy Awards for Best Documentary. And his newest film, Boy State, won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival before it was acquired by Apple for an eye-watering $12 million this year. Boy State is streaming right now on Apple TV+, and it tells the story of Boy State, an event run by the American Legion in which teens from around the country organize fake political parties and run a mock government. Now, I talk about this a little bit on the interview, but uh, I think what's amazing about Boy State is it makes me care about the fate of what's happening at this kind of mock government event uh, in Texas. And that's not something I would think I would care about. But the filmmaking is so exquisite, right? It takes these relatively low stakes and makes it into what many people read into it as kind of the, the battle for the soul of our nation that's happening right now uh, in this movie, Boy State. And so I love this movie. It's like one of my favorite films of the year. I laughed. I cried. I was so deeply moved by it. Um, the characters you meet, the, and they're not characters, they're actual humans. The, the, the boys you meet um, are so 
diverse, and they they have stories that uh, play out in ways that one wouldn't necessarily predict. Uh, so I just can't say enough good things about this movie. And I was so grateful to Jesse for him taking some time to chat with me. We talked for a really, really long time. Um, this is probably one of the longest interviews I've done for Culturally Relevant. And I didn't really edit it down that much. It's, you know, there's probably a little bit shaggy. Uh, and I, I feel bad about that. Uh, as uh, somebody who interviewed a documentarian who obviously has an extreme uh, talent for editing things uh, and, or knowing what's a good edit. Sorry, Jesse, if you're listening to this, but I just so enjoyed the conversation. I wanted to leave in a, as much of it as humanly possible because uh, I'm just a big fan of Jesse's work and I hope that you will enjoy uh, his work as well and that this podcast can be kind of a, a pathway for you to get into his work, uh, his previous film work, his previous TV work. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's what the conversation is going to be. It's going to be about his breaking in story and about the stuff he's made leading up to Boy State and how he made Boy State into a reality. So I thought it was a great conversation. I love talking with him. Uh, I do want to point out that when we start talking about Boy State, you should assume that Jesse is going to disclose what the result, the final ending of Boy State is. So um, if you don't want to be spoiled, just uh, start tuning out after uh, we get to the topic of Boy State, which happens about midway through the interview. Um, I don't want to spoil anyone who doesn't want to be spoiled yet. But anyway, just wanted to call that out. Uh, and before we get to the interview, I also want to mention you can find more episodes of the show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Follow the show on Twitter at crevshow, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W, and also email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. If you have any feedback, any thoughts, uh, you can also leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. All right, all that said, here's my interview with Jesse Moss about Boy State, and stick around for our weekly recommendations afterwards. I will skip the part where I brag for three minutes about how great and cool I am. Seeing as we are all qualified young men of skill and character. People like that stuff. People like that stuff a lot. Some people say they're a sports junkie. I say I'm a politics junkie. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. I'm playing this like a game. I would like very much to win. I love it, boys. I love it. Where are you from? I come from a very modest family. I'm on the course to be the first one to graduate from high school. I'm a progressive person, and I'm in a room full of mostly conservative people. Our masculinity shall not be infringed. I've never seen so many white people ever. I feel like everybody has a secret underlying need for bipartisanship. Jesse Moss, thanks so much for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. How are you doing today, Jesse? I'm great, David. Thanks for having me on your show. Great to talk to you. Uh, on this podcast, sometimes what I like to do is talk about breaking in stories. I'd love to learn about your breaking in story. How'd you break into being a filmmaker? Sure. Well, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, but I used to work in politics, actually. Uh, at, at a college, I got involved in democratic politics, went to Washington, D.C., thought I was going to work in that world and did for a couple of years, but um, ended up, uh, this was 1994, actually, a couple incredible films came out that year, Hoop Dreams and The War Room. I saw both films in the theater and was just blown away by the possibilities of of the form of nonfiction cinema verite storytelling. Um, and I think that opened my eyes to this world. And I was fortunate to meet a filmmaker who came down to DC to share a documentary. Uh, I was introduced to her. Her name is Christine Choi. 
she did a uh, made a famous film called Who Killed Vincent Chin, uh, which which I had that's actually what she was showing and um, very different than Hoop Dreams and the Worm. It's not a, a verite film, but um, I sort of threw myself on Chris and said um, I would be interested in doing some work for her as a researcher, even though I was living in Washington and she was up in New York and she took me up on that offer. It was free labor. So why wouldn't she? And I, um, I did some research for her about <clears throat> Louisiana had probably still does have a, a justifiable homicide law, uh, allowing people who feel that their lives are in, uh, under threat to, um, use deadly force. And I did some research on those, those laws for her and she liked my work and I think she was impressed. Um, and she said, well, if you come to New York, I'll give you a job. And I said, that sounds great. I'm moving up there. And that's what I did. I quit my job in DC. I packed up my shit and I drove a van up to New York City. And uh, the rest is not history. There was um, many chapters between that moment and now, but um, that's how I got started. Now, uh, did you know how to like operate a camera or edit things at that point? Like how, how did that come into the mix? Absolutely not. I took a one class at a DC's public access TV station. It was like a kind of um, cost 25 bucks, I think, to take the class. And I, I made a, a film on high video about Lenny Bruce, the comedian. It was kind of an experimental film. It was like the most experimental work I've ever done. It was had a, it was scored to a pavement song, and um, and I, it was like four minutes. Um, so I made that film. Didn't really know what I was doing, and it wasn't until I got to New York and I I was working for Chris, but really as a, a junior producer. Uh, but my, I met some filmmakers, great filmmakers who were very young, like me at the time, and they were beginning to make a documentary. Uh, together, they were a couple, Brett Morgan and Nanette Burstein. They're, they both become very famous documentary filmmakers. And I was like their <clears throat> their child. I, I was sort of their apprentice and um, they were dating at the time. And I was enlisted to hold a boom mic and Brett was photographing and co-directing with Nanette, a documentary that was um, became On the Ropes, a wonderful uh, verite film about boxers in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And that's how I learned a little bit of the craft. Um, it was how to do production audio and um, took that experience. Uh, then Amanda, who I uh, is now my wife and creative partner, um, we started dating. This was 1998 to put a pin in the calendar. And uh, Amanda had a DV camera, which I borrowed and began to do some shooting at a racetrack on Long Island. And that, that um, was a camera exercise that became my first documentary. It's called Speedo. Um, it's about a demolition derby driver. And what, what are some lessons you might have learned from back then that you still carry with you today? I think that the, the inspiration um, for watching Brett and Nanette make that film and just they had um, made it with a borrowed camera from the NYU film locker. Uh, they, you know, they were grad film students, actually. Um, and I think that I didn't I didn't think that you could just do that you know i thought i would have to like apprentice for 20 years to that to then go and make a movie and because I, I was working for chris and it wasn't like she had a big staff or anything but it didn't seem like achievable that i could direct a film and then i watched my friends make this movie that began as like a no budget nothing and became a really great film it was nominated for an oscar for feature documentary it won a special jury prize at sundance and it was it was a labor of love and I, that was a really powerful lesson for me and I think deeply inspirational um, and, and made by three three people. Actually, Nancy Baker edited the film and it was really Brett and Annette and Nancy and then I helped out. So made by a tiny group of people, made with a little bit of money and, and a lot of sweat equity. 
So just the idea that like you would work for uh, Christine, right? And it, it, she had felt like more established, and it felt like like unattainable. But then you saw your friend make on the ropes, right? Name the movie uh, for almost no money, and it re- really opened your eyes to what what is possible, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's when I I actually I then had an idea for a film I wanted to make, not not Speedo, which I I really made two films. One film that was a lot like Chris Choi's work, Christine Choi's work, um, it was a kind of more intellectual, cerebral, forensic documentary about a con man who went to Princeton. And I wrote a proposal for that film and began to make it very slowly and actually was able to raise money to make it. And then simultaneously was making this much more free form, cinema verite, immersive uh, documentary about this race car driver on Long Island, Speedo. And, and actually this, those two films sort of embody my split personality in the form. Um, I mean, I, my heart is really with cinema verite. Um, I don't know what, I'm actually struggling for the words to describe that form. And I feel like uh, I'm not sure if the word cinema verite mean anything to people. Yeah, uh, it, it means something to me, but yeah, I, I think like I understand what you're talking about. When I hear you say the words and I look at your work, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That matches up. Um, but you then uh, later on went on to make The Overnighters, right? Uh, which is a film that uh, was critically acclaimed, won a bunch of awards, tells the story of a pastor who sparks controversy by letting homeless people stay in his church. And what was your evolution, you know, from making your first movie to like making Overnighters, right? Like you, you told me you learned some lessons of like, oh, you can be super scrappy, but now uh, you, you need to kick it up a notch. How did you kick it up a notch for the Overnighters? Well, the truth is, David, I was a little bit lost in my career at that. I mean, that's like maybe about 10 years later. And I had, I had some success, but some failures. And um, I think was feeling like I didn't have traction in my career as a filmmaker. Um, I'd sort of been led astray by life and responsibilities and some conservative choices needing to work and producing some television. I think like we've all probably done and most of us have done. All of us have produced some television to make a buck every now and then. So, and you know, I, I, I'm, I've always believed like I'm not too precious and I think that it's always good to work and that work, in fact, I mean, this relates to the overnighters. I was working for National Geographic. I made um, a film for National Geographic about Civil War reenactors. And that was, um, I was actually just talking to my wife about it because it's a little bit, looking back on that movie, I mean, it's a kind of a nice film. It's about reenactors who are obs- obsessed with that world. And this was a, a, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. And there was a lot of big reenactments happening. And I loved the idea, I pitched Nachio, or they wanted to do this project and they, they knew that I like to make cinema verite films. So I, it was a good match. And I like, as you know, from Boy State, I, I'm attracted to stories that, that, that have an element of play acting. Sometimes I think that can be a valuable space to work in. Mm-hmm. It's true with Full Battle Rattle. It's true with um, Boy State. And, and it was true with this reenactor film, but I was working on a smaller scale and, um, and the, but the but the what's problematic about that film is that you know what the Civil War is about is slavery and death and those are two things that no Civil War reenactor wants to talk about and so it's actually it's a very playful film but it's a bit superficial in that it, it it's really just about being a reenactor and it's actually not about the substance of what the conflict 
really means still today. Mm -hmm. So to your question though, The Overnighter. So I did work for this film for Nacho. It was a 45 minute film. There's only so much you can do too. It was like a, I consider it like a B movie. It was like a good B movie. That's what television is, has been for me is like working in B movies. And, you know, many good directors have, you know, kind of got their start in B movies or, you know, Jonathan Demme, for instance, right? Did Caged Heat. And then he went on to become like a great artist. So not to compare myself to Jonathan Demme, but um, my point is like, I do, I, I like to not be too precious and take work and you make connections that are valuable in your career and both with um, partners like Nacio and, and creative collaborators. So Nacio came back to me and they said, well, we like to reenact your film. There's an oil boom in North Dakota. Do you want to go up there and do some casting development? Maybe we'll make a reality show up there. And I don't really like that kind of television, like Deadliest Catch. It's not really my bag, but I said, sure. I knew I was tracking the oil boom and I thought it was a very interesting story. I mean, the fact that there was in modern 21st century America, like a wild west frontier in Williston, North Dakota was like a very romantic notion. And there had been some good reporting about the oil boom. It was the place in America at the time, this is like post-recession, post-crash, 2011, 12, 13, where you could go and find work if you were like a working class American and been laid off building houses. So there was like this epic migration of people to North Dakota and Nacio sent me up there and I, I found my way to this church and to this pastor who was sheltering men who had come up there and had no place to sleep. It had nothing to do with what Nacio was interested in. I, but I did some filming in the church and I, and I came back and I sent them the footage and they, they were like, this is the most depressing shit we've ever seen. We, we, want, nothing to, we want nothing to do with this. And in fact, here's, here is the note. I, my, my executive, he's a nice guy. He said to me, he's like, this is too soulful. That's what he told me. And I was really moved by the experience. And my wife, I was like despondent that Nacho was like, no, nah, we're not going to do it. But I didn't really want to do what they wanted to do anyway. And my wife, Amanda, was like, I've never seen you talk about something like a, an experience like you're talking about what she saw up there with, with Pastor Jay and the church and the men. And like these were tough, big, tough grown men who were like weeping because they were so desperate. And I was like filming these incredible, this was like day two of production up there and casting. And I was filming these amazing moments and Jay's warmth, his love, his openness to them was really striking to me. And like, I'm not a guy who ever willfully set foot in a church. I'm not, I wasn't raised in the church. I'm not, um, I'm not Christian. It was really the last place I ever expected to be, but I was like, there's something special happening here. And so Amanda said, go back up there. We'll find a way to pay for it. Just keep shooting. So I did. Then I shot for, I don't know if you've seen the film, but I shot for 18 months up in, in, in North Dakota by myself. Um, I did about a 80 days of production over 18 months and kind of lived up there. I actually slept in Pastor Jay's church for six months. And, uh, you know, what was important for me at that time, I, I was saying this is I was a little bit lost, like professionally and like hadn't, you know, I was like a 40 year old filmmaker sort of with a little bit of success, but not much, two kids and like a kind of no clear path into the future. And I think, you know, this work, this, you know, call it art, call it what it is. Like, I think, I think it demands like risk, you know, and, and for me, at least like the, the greatest reward is 
in the work has been the work with the biggest risk financially, personally, creatively. And um, speaking of risk, like how did you fund your your stay up there? Like you, you said your wife was like, we'll figure out a way to pay for it. Like, had you saved up? Did you like max out your credit cards? Like, how did that work? Well, I went broke. I took a I actually took a photograph of my bank account balance at some point during production. I had eight dollars, which is funny now because, as you know, Apple bought Boy State twelve million dollars, and um, which, I mean, anyway. There, but it, it's and you saw all of that money, right? A hundred percent of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know how the film business works. No, yeah. but I mean, I, 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 it's, I, I mean, I, it's a needless to say a position I'd never find thought I'd find myself in, but. I, having eight bucks was a rough moment. Uh, we financed the film. We were doing other work. I think um, at the time I did some, um, I mean, I actually produced an episode of the Nachio show Doomsday Preppers. That was a low moment, but I was doing it to make money and to finance the overnighters. And the overnighters was like a Hail Mary. And, um, and I was following the story. I didn't know where it would go. Um, I shot, I mean, you know, there was like, amazing moments that I shot. I didn't know what the film would be, but I knew that the, what was happening with Jay and his family and the church was just wild and um, just kept going and going. And um, right, you know, we, we've, my editor, Jeff Gilbert, who cut Boy, Boy State, who I've known for 20 years, he, I had actually sent him a drive for another project. I was like, he was cutting a short film for me and, and it happened to have a folder full of overnighters footage on it. And he just like did what you're not supposed to do as an editor. I think he like looked into the other folder and, and, and he, 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 he said to me, he's like, what is this? He's like, I want to work on this. Whatever this is, I don't know what it is, but I want to work on it. And I think he saw what I saw. And, and so Jeff came on to help me and, and we edited the film and we got in. I'd never gotten into Sundance as a director. I was 44 and uh, Sundance accepted the film. I was able to raise the money to finish it. And that was like, kind of put me back sort of re, I don't know, calibrated my professional career as a filmmaker. Yeah, because um, at that point, you basically had been legitimized by a variety of organizations, right? So yeah, you, you at, from that point forward, you're saying like Overnighters was, was the turning point when you're like finally a filmmaker, pretty much. I, I think, I mean, I'd felt like a filmmaker and like an artist before that, but in a much smaller way. And, and, and I think, you know, part of what has happened to is the industry has changed in a good way. And I happened to get in early in that good moment and kind of find my direction personally um, and my craft. And um, I made another full battle rattle. We mentioned briefly, I made that with the co-director, Tony Gerber. And that movie, you know, it sold, it went to the Berlinale and South by, and it, it had some success, but, it wasn't a breakout movie, and I think as a director, you need to you need a breakout. And um, the Overnighters broke out, like not commercially, um, but critically. Like critics really responded to the movie, and people who saw the movie were deeply moved. Not that many people saw it, but the people who did see it remember it. I think it really shook them. Before we move on, uh, I do just want to like like touch base on this uh, remark you made about like TV being B movies. I think a lot of people believe now that TV is a superior art form to movies. Right. Um, and I'm yeah. curious, like has your thinking on TV versus movies evolved? Because I feel like the most exciting storytelling happening right now is TV. And obviously it's the only storytelling going on right now because we're living yeah. in a pandemic, but like even before that, you know, if you wanted to see like uh, rich, diverse characters with like, 
you know, 10 hour long season arcs. Like that's TV mm-hmm. is where you'd go to see that stuff. No question. TV drama has eaten independent dramatic fiction film. Um, but I think that was less true in documentary has become true that um, the, the canvas of the limited series or the left to a lesser extent, the recurring series, but let's call it the limited series um, on um, streaming platforms has really allowed new possibilities in the form. I think that, um, you know, prior to Netflix's arrival, um, television nonfiction was, you know, there, there really, there, there were like the deadliest catches. And then there was like Nat Geo Explorer and PBS and, and HBO. HBO was like, you, you know, and HBO and PBS were really the kind of spaces where you could do more independent and an artistic work. Um, but if you were, you know, I produced like some crime shows for True TV. This was like a low moment of my professional career. But, you know, I had fun making them. Those were more like B-movies. Right, you're right. Like what's happening now, I don't know. Netflix has even evolved in the last four years and like their own appetites and we'll see where it takes us. But um, no question. I mean, what's been interesting for me is I made features I made these B-movie documentaries we talked about. And then I did go and make a limited series for Netflix called The Family, which is really interesting. And yeah, Jeff an example of what we're talking about, um, five episodes, one story based on a book by Jeff Charlotte, kind of um, a canvas that allowed some flexibility in the form, which was exciting to me. It wasn't like a huge success, but... Um, but I've come back, I came back to features with Boy State because I still feel like we're living in the legacy world where features still matter, um, for a director's profile, for mm. exhibition at a festival like Sundance to, you know, up until the m- moment where theatrical still existed pre COVID features were, you know, no one was booking limited documentary series in a theater. Yeah. Right. So if you wanted to be in a theater, you wanted to be at Sundance for the most part, you needed to make a feature. So it's actually still a valuable space for a director, um, even though it's not the space that streamers really want to be in unless they're making a prestige play and buying a film that they think generally has either like huge breakout pop potential, like it's about Taylor Swift, or it's like an awards candidate. So after The Overnighters broke out, you made a bunch of shorts, you made some TV, you did The Family, like you said, you did an episode of Dirty Money. How did Boy State come into the picture? Yeah, I mean, it, it really came in two ways. One was just processing the election. And I think always for, for me and for Amanda as well, um, you know, these films like Full Battle Rattle and like The Overnighters to start with these like epic events and, and sort of our struggle to process them and make sense of them and the fabric of American life, the Iraq war, the oil boom in North Dakota. And we sort of find our way to these particular stories that um, are our way in to answer these larger set of questions. And that for us was the question of political polarization in America and this sort of intractable division that we found ourselves in when we started the project has only increased since then. It's been three years since we started the project. So this was post-election processing Trump's victory, scratching our heads, um, kind of paralyzed about what to do about it, you know, um, never wanting to chase stories that everybody else is chasing. Read Then that was the first part. Second part is reading in the Washington Post. I was just reading the paper and um, 
I had su subscribed to the post. I thought, oh, well, I should subscribe to a second to, you know, not just the times I'll subscribe to the post. And re I read that the Texas boys state program had voted to secede from the union in 2017. And that story, um, is what sparked the film. Um, I, I mean, I knew about the program, um, only because I knew Bill Clinton had gone through it. Um, but I didn't even know that it was still around. I thought maybe it was like a relic of the 20th century. Um, but reading about the Texas boys, it, it, um, it was a reminder that the program was very much here, very much reflecting the mood of the, of the country and the decision the boys made to secede, which is like a joke. But I felt, I felt like in the joke was something quite telling, clearly. Um, the boys were acting out and they were acting out the political divisions of our country. And I felt like in that idea to me was the kernel of the movie. And as we've talked about, like the space that I'm interested in often is this it's like a theatrical space, you know, they're, they're basically putting on a giant play. And I mean, there's nothing worse than a filmed play, by the way, as a movie. <laughs> but oh, I guess you're not a Hamilton fan, huh? <laughs> you know, I loved the, the I saw it. It sounds sound like a like a snob. I mean, I saw it in the theater and I loved it. I think it's an amazing piece of, of theater. I'm not and I'll watch I'll come around to watching it. And I'm sure I'll, I'll be deeply moved by it. But um, I like live theater. I love live theater. Yeah. Um, I, f I feel like often like tape theater falls in some kind of like uncanny valley <laughs> for me of storytelling. Um, and so, so um, there's nothing worse than a filmed play you were saying. So why did you then decide to charge yeah. into this situation? Well, I think the scale of the simulation is, was so large and potentially so illuminating as a kind of weather vane, you know, sort of pointing in a direction that country might be heading because I thought, um, if they voted to secede in 2017, what would happen the following year? Now it's a different crop of boys. So they're gonna be starting from scratch, but like, I really wondered, and I think we wrote this in our original treatment, like, were they gonna have civil war or were they gonna reconcile? And, and you know, would this be a kind of crystal ball into our future? And, um, and I, Texas is super interesting. I spent some time in Texas during the 2016 election, actually filming voter suppression and, Texas, you know, it's such a, it's a purple state. It's not red, it's not blue. It's really like a kind of fault line in American politics. And it's also exaggerated and oversized and outrageous. And that's interesting too. Um, you know, there's, so I think Texas as a, as a geographic canvas, boy state as this large scale social experiment, teenage boys, that intrigued me. I don't think Amanda and I fully reckoned with how much of a window we would have into boyhood with the film. I mean seems like self-evident, but I think we were so focused on the politics of the event that we didn't think so much that the film would offer as much of, um, at, in its study of masculinity and sort of competing notions of what it means to be a, a man, um, both personally and politically. Here's what I love about your film, which, you know, uh, you already are aware is like uh, one of my favorite films of the year. I think it's, it's really well done. Um, if you made a list of topics I would give a crap about, you know? Uh, the American Legion inviting all these, like, a thousand boys to, like, play act uh, government for a few days would not be in my top 500 of, of topics that I'd care to watch a documentary about. 
And what's so great about the film is it takes this yearly event that takes place in like locations all around the country. And uh, it makes the stakes into something that feel really high. But my question for you is, how did you convince people to finance this movie? Because it doesn't feel like this is something that would have a lot of built-in audience. Well, you, you, I think it's a hazard to try to anticipate what kind of audience a film will have. I mean, I think you have to really operate from a, a pure personal place. Um, and, and hopefully the audience will follow. Like, I can only trust my own judgment, right? I cannot tell you, first of all, what the audience will be interested in and what they would be interested in three years from the time I start the the film, particularly a political film, right? Because what the world was like then is not what the world is like now. So um, I think uh, I think if I was, say, a younger filmmaker, I might have doubted myself more and not proceeded with the, I would have been like, that's absurd and funny and maybe somebody should make that film, but it's not gonna be me. But I, maybe you know from my past work, I'm, I am interested in conservative spaces in American life and you know, I, I'm progressive politically. I come from San Francisco. I grew up in like in a left-wing household out here. And like, I couldn't be, that couldn't be further from my lived reality. But like, I've always found it, I found myself drawn to explore, you know, whether it was working in this army simulation or going to North Dakota with these working class Americans and Pastor Jay, whose, you know, politics are far from mine. I just, that's, to me, that's the space I want to explore. And I think the privilege for me of being a documentary filmmaker is I can go there. I mean, I'm a white man, it helps, right? And, and the camera is often a, a, a ticket in. And I just, I, this has been true for 20 years, you know, that I've been working in those spaces and going further back into college, exploring the right wing in, in, in particularly in the, in the, and, you know, I got interested in the Red Scare in Hollywood. And so I, the Legion, is a little bit, I didn't know what to make of the Legion. Um, certainly the program struck me as quite old fashioned in it's gender segregation, right? It's got the, got the boy state and they got girl state and they're, they've been separated forever, which seems a little out of step with the times. What we quickly discovered though, and I'll get to your question about financing is um, when we started doing the initial development, we reached out to the guys who run the program and they're actually really cool guys. And they're, they're not at all like a type like they're all over the map politically. Um, they're all guys who went through the program, I think as, as young men, and they just stayed loyal to it. And they do this work for free. And they were super open-minded, despite having been embarrassed by this Washington Post story about their secession vote. And I think mm -hmm. there was a lot of frowning and hand-wringing at the American Legion about this boys doing this outrageous thing. But the guys at Texas were like, you know, I said, we said, I mean, actually called them and and she said look we're interested in like what this program is about civil discourse like is this even possible in america and i think that they really loved that idea that we wanted to focus on that question and how the program works and that we wanted to follow boys like a handful of boys through the program and that relates to your question too because we we went out for financing actually there was an almost immediate response from a few entities and we had a i wrote a pitch um, which is kind of funny now to look at because I kind of invented a few different characters who would be in the film. And there's some interesting similarities between mm -hmm. invented characters and who we found ultimately. Um, I don't think we anticipated the extent to which the story, the film would hinge on Renee and Stephen, these young men of color who have progressive politics kind of challenging this conservative structure. 
and system. And, and we didn't even realize to what extent the lead, the, the program, the boys who would be attending were white and conservative. Now, um, if you, it, it, I think of it as a bit like the US Senate in its representation, Boys State, you know, it draws heavily from rural communities. It's not representative of Texas. It's representative, representative of like an older Texas. And the guys who let us in, who run the program, I think are really, we're trying, and our, our access is, I think, testament to this. We're trying to kind of open it up and, and to work hard to bring in new voices and to kind of air out the mustiness. And you see it in the program. It's kind of old fashioned and it's like patriotism and it's marching. And it, it I mean, it, you, you see its connection to the, to the Legion, which is a military veterans organization. It felt like something out of the 1950s that Wes Anderson might have conjured up, like kind of Moonrise Kingdom, right? This sort of old-fashionedness, and and yet it cl clearly we could see had a foot in the 21st century. And and as we began to meet some of the boys who had been selected, we could see that there it had a foot in both the 50s and now. And that is, I think, where our country is, and and what we felt about the program. And so we went out and um, we hadn't cast the film, but we had the idea, we had the treatment and immediately people I think connected with it. I mean, I think people are, you know, commercially speaking, there's something appealing about um, young people, you know, they're sort of half formed and that's always interesting. And um, I mean, I look, I, I, my film prior to this was about a, a you know, an old white pastor and, and that's a tough, <laughs> it's, he's not that old, he was 50. Um, but but just you know that I'm just kind of a purely commercial level that that's a that's a tough lift, and I think there was something kind of the energy of boy state was appealing. The political relevance was obvious. I think not the potential, but but you know the the potency of that vote to secede. People could recognize that, and I think so. Davis Guggenheim, he's a documentary filmmaker. Of course, yeah. he won an Oscar. Um, for an inconvenient truth, and he's very political. He's active in democratic politics, and but a, also a great filmmaker and a really good guy. And he had a new studio. Um, we had a connection to them. Amanda went to college with uh, Davis's um, partner, Jonathan Silberberg, and so we sent them the treatment. Nicole Stott, too, actually is the development executive there, and like they right away we're like this is really interesting um what do you need to move forward and um we agreed that casting the film was really the challenge uh, that the, the movie would hinge on that and so they agreed to fund development and that was um, enough to allow us to go to texas and spend three months meeting boys who'd been selected for the program or were being interviewed for the program you see that in the film boys auditioning to go in to the program um and the, the financing was going to hinge on the success of that casting. We made a casting reel, which is about 25 minutes. And it's, um, you know, it's not like the movie. It's, it's really interviews with, we shot with the boys in their houses. We didn't like them, but they're beautifully photographed. We decided to shoot with them. Um, no crew, just me and Torsten Tilo, who's the, was the primary DP on the film, Amanda. And um, we shot these really exquisite and quite wonderful interviews with boys. And in that process, we met Stephen. We kind of like stumbled into Stephen. Stephen Garza, met, one of the main characters in the film. Yeah. Yeah. We met Stephen and Renee and I'm sorry, Stephen and Ben and Robert were the three of the three we met in casting. And um, I think, you know, what Amanda likes to say is 
we had to meet a lot of boys, but once we met them, it was so abundantly clear that they were right. Um, what they shared was intelligence, ambition, political sophistication, this X factor, which is like vulnerability and charisma. Um, and, you know, people, some people like think, I don't know if you had this thought, you know, it's surfaced in a few reviews, but sort of like a sneaking suspicion that, you know, it's sort of like a rigged game and we sort of like, or it's got to be scripted or, you know. I, I, well, because it does feel really perfect that you happen to be following uh, some of the boys that were, you know, crucial to yeah. the end votes. And I would say, you know, and I think the answer to that question is one, you know, we worked hard to meet a lot of boys and that's just legwork. And um, two, well, and we have good instincts though. I mean, I think we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be here if I didn't, <laughs> I think have good instincts about who's a compelling screen character. I mean, I, this is not, I've made many films at this point in my life and I just trust myself. Again, I'm not looking for who you think David is a good screen character. I'm mm -hmm. looking for who just, and I like to look through, I shoot, you know, I'd like to look through the camera and think about my relationship to this person through the camera, because that's ultimately what matters. Right. And so that's, I shot, Torsten shot and I shot to B camera and we looked and there's nothing on really, I mean, Steven is the most surprising of the bunch, you know, because he's unassuming and quiet. Um, I mean, he definitely had the things I talked about, but just, I don't think other, you know, 90, 999 other documentary filmmakers would not pick Steven. That doesn't, that doesn't mean they wouldn't have made a great film about Boys State. They just would have picked somebody else. And I picked Steven and I had no idea that he could give a speech no, you know, and this is a subject for a, maybe a second conversation, honestly, but like the camera doesn't make Steven suddenly be able to give a good speech. Like that's right. in him, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, the question of like, so let me just, we, we found these exceptional young men, then we got lucky because we didn't know that they would, um, succeed at the event. We didn't know that their paths would cross, that a story would kind of unfold in front of us involving these three that we met, plus Renee, who we cast on the spot once Boys State started, and we saw him give that speech. Um, that's luck. Now, if you'd never seen the, if you'd never seen any of my other work, particularly you'd never seen The Overnighters, which to my mind has like, I mean, I, there's shit that made my jaw hit the floor. I, I mean, there's amazing moments in that movie. And that, I mean, that's a totally unscripted story. Like, I've done it before, right? And I sort of am offended that people somehow think, like, you know, there's some kind of engineering. How, how dare they think? I mean, you know, to be fair, uh, and I actually had a debate on the Slash Filmcast recently with my colleague about, like, a lot of people, I think, don't know the difference between reality television versus documentaries, right? Yeah. And like, there is a lot of, and uh, I, I would argue that um, there's a lot of blurring the lines that's happening right now with regards to those two things. Absolutely, and and I no, and I recognize that's the space that I'm that I'm in, and and you know what what happened, of course, is that you know, I mean, real that certain kind of, I mean developments that were pioneered in documentary storytelling were sort of co-opted into commercial television. And now it's become, you know, 
we have to, we reckon, we reckon with them when we make work. So, you know, when I shoot an interview with Ben, you know, and it, as we did during Boy State, it's like to people, some people whose reference point is certain kind of commercial reality television, that's what they see. Like, I don't see that because I went into documentary 25 years ago and that form didn't exist. Yeah. Um, to me, it's just, it's a, it's an interview, but, um, but you're right. Like they, they, the understanding that the audience has about that form is it's highly produced, highly scripted, highly manipulated, all which it is. Um, and I don't, that doesn't bother me. Like I, first of all, I, I have great faith in the audience to kind of divine what they need to, you know, and what's on screen. And like, I also would never say that the camera has like no, I mean, the camera's relationship and my relationship to my subjects is it's everything in documentary. It's, it's in every frame and every choice. And I, you certainly can't separate out, you know, the, the cameras it's, I can't parse what effect the camera had on behavior. It's a question that Stephen answers very well, actually. When people say, well, did, did Jess, did the camera's attention have an outcome on your, have an effect on you on, on the outcome of your campaign, you know, and, and, um, I think, you know, what Steven says is that, well, for one, he realized that everything he did would be memorialized. And that was kind of like a, a, a moment of, of, um, I think it, it made him take, take it more seriously in a way. Um, but he still struggled to get his signatures. Um, it didn't help him. Um, he, our cameras were on Rob and, and Rob didn't win the runoff. Spoiler, Stephen does. So it, it, it. Right, which by the way, is not what I would have predicted. Um, so. Me neither, me yeah. neither. It's, it, I mean, he, and he won by a tremendous margin in that campaign. And then the candidate who we did follow, Eddie, wins ultimately, right? So now, um, you know, if, if, but I also think that it's a bit like, you know, national sort of um, adult state politics where, you know, in a presidential campaign, like the, the media's attention on a candidate can be validating. It's everything, isn't it? I mean, legitimizes, validates, um, cure, you know, kind of curates. The media makes those choices. So we made choices. Certainly we followed these young men and not those young men. I mean, but we weren't kind of pulling strings in the background, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's just um, fate and fortune and um, good, good casting. Uh, one of the most impressive things about the film is how immersive it is. Like you, it feels like you, the filmmaker, are inches away from these people as they're giving speeches in front of a thousand people or you know, doing these other things. And I, I just wanted to ask you on a very basic level, how did you film it? Like, what was the crew? Was it just you with a shotgun mic attached to like a, a Canon C100? Or, you know, like what, what did you do to actually capture the footage? And, and I actually, I think um, on the podcast, the, the Slash Film podcast, I think you guys were talking about the intimacy of the film, which I appreciated hearing you discuss. And you talked about uh, the distance being in feet, but the distance actually was inches. And in fact, the camera was as close as that microphone is to your face. Um, we made the decision, um, I, I mean, everybody involved in this creatively, and there were seven cinematographers, we're all, um, we're, we're all practitioners of the verite form. 
and that's what we love to do. And so uh, that's handheld. I mean, I've shot scenes on a tripod and they can be powerful too, but, but the agility of being handheld on the Canon C300 Mark II, shooting it with a 35 millimeter prime lens, which is a departure from past work where I would rely on a zoom lens because yeah. I wanted the flexibility of, of being able to, to push in from a distance and not actually physically move. But when you commit to the prime, I don't know if you, if you do photography, yes, David, I do. but yeah. And so we committed to the prime and we, we actually committed to a standardized F-stop across all of the camera operators. We shot at the movie at an F2. The whole movie shot at F2, wow. and which is actually really hard. I'm not very good at it, it turns out, pulling focus at F2 when you and the subject are both moving. Like, that's fucking hard. And You didn't use the uh, dual pixel autofocus on that C300? <laughs> yeah, I don't believe, I have never used <laughs> autofocus and don't, I, I just don't believe it's as, you know, effective as, racking with my hand yeah. and but you know i don't we had torsten and wolfgang and claudia rashke and and martina radwan and um daniel carter and they're all they shoot every day all the time and they're masters of the craft and they're poets and they can rack at f2 i cannot and so you'll see that in the film but um but what that f2 did was allow us to create um some sep really separation right is to sh the the depth of field drops off and we were shooting in institutional rooms, which we knew would be the challenge to, to make those spaces, not pretty, but kind of cinematic. Right. And to, so, and I love the subjectivity of the close camera. And for example, when Steven is giving when his first rousing speech and Daniel Carter is shooting it and he is as close as that windscreen is to your face. I love, I love that. I, and I love that we, and I had to learn as a shooter to get close and to, you know, you sort of have to be a close talker, which I'm, I can, who, no one likes a close talker, but when you're a cinema verite shooter, you have no business doing it if you're not willing to get close to people and not to wait to be asked, but to, but to just push in. And the access that we had from Boy State allowed us to do two important things. One was to be very close to people on stage, which typically in political films you cannot because you're in the, the, the uh, the back of the room on a tripod, on a riser, which is like death, cinematic death. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, you know, on any coverage of some candidate giving a stump speech in the at the in Iowa, it's like the, the angle you see, maybe you get a, a raked side angle also on a riser. That sucks too. And so, you know, either you want to be on stage or backstage, but I don't think you want to be anywhere else. So we, we could do that. And the other thing we could do, which is really important is we, almost all political documentaries sort of by condition of access are shot from one candidate's point of view. They're, you know, you're embedded with Cory Booker or you're embedded with, um, you know, Kamala Harris Steven. or yeah, but you're almost never shooting on both sides of the, of the conflict of the campaign of the race. Right. And there's one actually, it's, an, it's not a campaign film, but one of the great, great political films, documentary films is Crisis, the Robert Drew film, which is about the integration of uh, the University of Alabama. And I was re-watching the film recently and just reminded because what's extraordinary about it is they're shooting with the Kennedys, JFK's president, Bobby Kennedy's attorney general. They're shooting with the Kennedys in the Oval Office and they're shooting with George Wallace in Alabama. And it's like DA Pennebaker is actually shooting in Alabama with Wallace, I believe. It's amazing because it's this climactic confrontation. 
Wallace is refusing to allow these students who've been admitted to actually go to the University of Alabama. And there's this confrontation in the, in the uh, doorway and um, you're, you're on both sides and it's amazing. And so the opportunity of Boy State was we knew we could shoot with both parties and potentially both campaigns in this contest for governor. And look, it's fake. It's a mock election. It's Boy State, who cares? But it's like, I think as a way to tell the story and that you know everything else that this film is about, it, it was a, a kind of a gift of vantage points. What was something you discovered in the edit room that kind of surprised you about the footage that you captured? Because often a movie like this is made in the edit room, right? Yeah, um, so this was absolutely yeah. six, six days to shoot the film well, three months to cast, but six days of principal photography, and then over a year to edit the film, which is seems like a lot of was a lot of time. Um, seems like more time than we should have needed because we knew the characters, we knew the story, we knew the plot, right? we knew what happened, we knew who won and who lost. But I think that's right to kind of um, to puzzle out the rhythm of the movie to the character development. I find the first fifteen minutes of a film often the most challenging, and just like setting up the world you're about to bring the audience into. What are the rules of this world? How does it work? What is the tone of the film? What's the language of the movie that we want the audience to kind of quickly understand? We wanted the audience to know they could laugh watching this film. That was important. It was going to be a serious film. And we have like a, you know, there's a serious George Washington quote, and then a kind of serious provocative classroom scene that opens the movie where they're talking about um, Orwell and Huxley. Um, but, um, you know, there were, I would say like, I mean, the things that get worked out very late in the edit to me are often, this was true in the overnighters too, is like we, the potency of the interview material we shot with the boys, Robert's confession, you know, his lying, um, which is, you know, such a surprise. Um, uh, the kind of vulnerabilities that we, you know, Ben talking about dirty tricks. Um, some of that, we didn't shoot that much of, of that in production. I mean, nothing was shot after the event wrap, but in terms of like actual recorded time, the interviews were, um, and they were very brief. Like the boys were so busy that we was just to get them to sit down and have a few minutes of quiet time was hard, but the potency of that was high. And so, but I think as the film progresses in the edit and the sort of deeper thematic meaning comes into focus, you, you, go find yourself going back and back again and back again to those interviews. And like the things, the phrase that Renee said here actually belongs here. And some of that's just iteration and experimentation, you know, but some of it is just, you don't arrive, you have to give yourself license to spend that much time in the writing process of the edit. And, and for us, for Amanda and Jeff and, and me, having done this on the overnighters together before, I think we have a good, I mean, we have a good working relationship and we understand that the process will take that long and will require, you know, 99 versions to get to the right one. And so I don't, you know, there wasn't like the overnighters had a sort of like a bigger aha structurally. It has like a kind of, it opens with the end, the ending confession of from Jay. It's sort of a um, provocative and um, kind of um, it's, it, it, it's, it's unusual in that it, it's not a verite scene. It's it's a, it's a he's making a confession, and the way that it was shot, and the way that he, what he has to say, is just set set the table for the film for the story that follows. And this film does not have that kind of structural trick. 
Um, so it wasn't like we arrived, oh, let's put the ending at the beginning and everything will kind of work out. Right. We tried that at some point. I was like, no, that, that's not going to work on this movie. Um, I think um, there were, what, what was tricky stru- structurally is that it's the, about the race for governor, but Renee and Ben are two, are two um, party chairmen. They're such important characters. And the way that they were building their parties and the, um, you know, the challenges that Renee was facing and Ben's success and kind of harnessing his party and then kind of plotting strategy, how we integrated their stories and their rise with uh, um, Stephen and Robert's conflict as, as they were squaring off to get the nomination for governor. The part that it's, it, it's like minute 20 to minute 40 of the film, you know, I would say maybe actually it's more like minute yeah, 25. That was a that was an awful section to work through and to get right. And I think we got it right. Um, but and this necessitated a, a number of really bad experiments. Um, I don't, I mean, one, you know, there, there were some, some lines, some things that were said in the film, particularly like Ben's invocation of Trump, which comes, Trump's name is only mentioned once in the film at the end by Ben. And I don't want to give away the context of that, but there was a big debate in the edit room about to what extent we, we acknowledge that. Do we even bring this person's name into the conversation? Like to me, the power of the movie is that you never have to say his name right? Mm. Everybody brings that into the experience. It's a little bit like, for me, Man on Wire. Um, the, 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 the destruction of the World Trade Center is never acknowledged in the film. It doesn't need to be, right? I, we don't need to acknowledge the destruction of our body politic. Um, and it's the shadow we all bring. And even then, it's, it's extremely fraught. Um, so I think that, was, that, that engendered quite a bit of debate, um, whether or not Ben should should say that. Um, you know, of course, there were some couple, couple of good good moments with Renee that we couldn't fit in the film. One funny scene in particular, he he worked with the the rules committee of his party to write the rules of impeachment in such a way that he could protect himself because <laughs> he, he knew that he was vulnerable. That was the kind of and we were thinking about using that scene at the very time that Trump that the house was holding their impeachment hearings. We're like, of course we've got to use this scene. But then we got past that and we're like, no, we don't need the scene. Um, so. Uh, so you heard our review of this movie on the Slash Filmcast. And I think there is a real temptation when people are watching this movie to get really emotionally invested in it and be like, F this person, that person's a sociopath, you know, and so on. And uh, really it's just, it's just kids kind of, play acting this game right and it's like you know i i think that there are you you shouldn't necessarily generalize to their entire person how they acted during this one week yeah. but not everyone might feel that way um did that ever occur to you as a danger as you're making this movie that like you're kind of cat you're immoral immortalizing the actions of these 17 year old boys in ways that might not be super flattering to some of them absolutely um first of all i appreciated the, the nuance of the discussion that you had and that and um, that I, as you guys talked about this question, and and um, first of all, to recognize that they're they're they're, they're boys, you know, they're boys becoming men, and if we were all judged on our behavior and actions and statements at seventeen, God help us, right? And um, and I think that it's it's the privilege of the work that we do as documentary filmmakers, particularly this kind of work that demands so much trust from your subjects that you you have to 
ensure that you um, respect that trust and them and that they are not actors. They're real people whose lives continue and go on and beyond the film. And, um, you know, you have, you have a responsibility to that relationship and to that person. And those transcend, for me, they transcend like any kind of subject author relationship. I mean, these we're intensely close to all of them and Pastor Jay to, you know, we're, you become like family when you go, because you go through, if you make this kind of movie, I think like the overnighters, this is, that was the most trying experience of his entire life, I think. And you go through that with them and it binds you together in a powerful way. Now, Jay and I haven't talked in a while, but I, you know, we share that connection and this is true with these young men. And we, we are, I think we feel some um, responsibility for how vulnerable, I mean, we pick them because they're vulnerable. Um, ben and, and, and Ben in particular, I mean, it's been painful to see some of the very hurtful things that people say about him on Twitter. I mean, I, I know we know Ben and we love Ben. I think of Ben as a friend. Ben and I don't share the same feelings about Ronald Reagan. You know, we don't agree politically probably on quite a few things, but I really, I like Ben a lot and I think he's a good person. And, you know, look, Twitter is Twitter. I don't, I expect no more, no less from it. But um, I, I, I'm, and he's grown, you know, he's a little bit older now. Now what's been really powerful, and I don't think many people realize who haven't participated in a Q&A uh, with the boys around the film, which we've had a few of in the last couple of months, is that Ben has re really come to reflect on the corrosiveness of his actions in a way that I wasn't honestly sure he would would or was capable of, um, and has disavowed his tactics. I think he recognizes now that he's grown up and is living in a country in which that kind of corrosive action has further poisoned um, our, our body politic that he sees how he embodied that and his win at all cost strategy, he really disavows. And I think that's a, it's very powerful. And I wouldn't, I want, I, I really want Ben to speak for himself about that. And I, I you know, Renee today had an op-ed in the New York times. Yeah. I don't know if you've Ren, um, Renee had an op-ed and he basically described how the experience had eliminated his desire to participate in in like actual politics right that's right he's he's really focused on activism and he's really i think it kind of embittered him and um which is a shame too because i think you know maybe he'll find his way back i mean renee will find his path and i love the honesty and the reckoning of that of that essay um i would like i hope ben gets an opportunity to share where he's at now too because he really is he has grown up and i think you know, maybe in ways people don't seem to be willing to, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how people would feel about that. You know, it's, it's convenient. I mean, Ben himself, we sent the rough cut to Ben and it was fascinating um, because we wanted his feedback. I mean, of course we retain editorial control of the movie, but um, I've, I've always shared cuts with subjects and I want to know what they think about the movie and have a conversation. And Ben sent us two pages of notes, very detailed notes. They were very good notes actually. And, um, but he realized suddenly, I think that he was not the protagonist, that he was the antagonist, <laughs> the, the villain of the film. <laughs> yeah. And he probably, I think he might've put it that bluntly. And I think that was a shock to him because, you know, he, I mean, again, how he talks about this is quite moving, but, but he didn't, 
you know, he saw his own experience. That's all he saw and experienced. And in fact, there's a lot that we filmed that we didn't put in the movie of him corralling his party and sort of not the dirty tricks, but like the good work of leadership. And he is a very, he was a very effective political party leader. So, um, you know, Ben and Renee and Stephen um, all came to Sundance and despite their differences, you know, we're all um, talking to each other. I think there's healing still. Um, I mean, I think Renee was hurt by that experience. I don't know how, you know, that that hurt between him and Ben will, will ever fully be healed. But I think that um, his willingness and Ben's willingness to be a part of a conversation with each other moving forward around the film and separate from the film is, you know, that that makes me hopeful. You guys spent a lot of time. I love the discussion you guys had today about, you know, is it is it is it hopeful or is it pessimistic? What is it, you know, and it really so much depends on where you come from and what you feel and um, what you take away from the movie. And I know for Amanda and for me, it, it, it did make us, um, it, it was a very emotional experience. I think some of that, that emotion is hopefully conveyed in the film, um, but it made us hopeful. Um, I mean, it, it was as shocking as, you know, other, you know, we hear from critics and audiences um, the things that they're shocked by, we were shocked by and horrified by. But um, but there was there was a lot that made us hopeful, and I think the, the fact that the conversation between them and their has continued and their growth has continued in surprising ways um, that continues to to make us hopeful. And um, it's not like a naive hope, too. And I think you know Stephen Stephen's defeat. Um, um, it's 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 okay. Like I, I we had to accept that as storytellers. You know, we wanted sure who doesn't want the Hollywood ending, right? The Rocky and does Rocky win at the end of Rocky? I don't remember. I think he does. He doesn't. Not in Rocky one. Not in Rocky one. Okay, so it's been a while. <laughs> but but you know, we I I we I think we all I wanted him to. Win. It, 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 in in a way, it was Rocky, like because it wasn't yeah. about whether he won or not. It was the fact that he got in the game. You know. Yeah, it's made it's made. I mean, Stephen is stronger, and um, and. Um, and he himself says in the film, you know, you become strong by defying de defeat. He, he quotes Napoleon. Thank you. You know, I mean, who, who quotes Napoleon, first of all? Like, I mean, amazing, right? But, but I love that. And I think that lesson is, is a powerful one. And I think he, his life, he's defied defeat through his life and will continue to into hopefully into political leadership. Um, and then that's the, that's the story of, of any, you know, of a political movement of change. I mean, it doesn't come easily. And um, I think we'd all like a little bit of wish fulfillment. You know, and I get that, like, it's not the happy ending that some of us crave. But I really, I love the ending of it. I love how the film ends. I think it's honest, but hopeful. All right. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Jesse Moss is a director of films such as Full Battle Rattle and Speedo, a demolition derby love story. His 2014 film, The Overnighters, uh, was shortlisted at the Academy Awards for Best Documentary. And his newest film, Boy State won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. It is streaming right now on Apple TV+. Jesse Moss, thanks for joining us today on Culturally Relevant. Thanks, David. Great to talk to you. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. It's the part of the show each week where we recommend things we've been watching, listening to, reading, eating, smelling, etc. 
this week, I asked Jesse Moss what he recommended for folks. Here is what he had to say. I just finished Oliver Stone's autobiography, uh, which I haven't thought a lot about Stone. You know, I haven't really connected with his movies in the last 10 or 15 years, but um, um, I, I picked up his book and, and I loved it. Um, it's it's a good occasion to revisit um, some of his his earlier films. I've been rewatching Platoon, but the book is great. It's just, he's a really good writer. It's a lot about his parents, maybe a bit too much, but it's really, it's just honest. And then I think the filmmaking, there's the, the stuff about filmmaking is like catnip for filmmakers. Um, and of course he had like, a, a, I mean, he struggled, but, and, but and then he had like a meteoric rise, you know, but, but also his films were never easy films. They're political films. He, they were made with like a, an incredible gonzo spirit, but he was also a consummate craftsman. And I think he's an, a, an underestimated artist. I was just talking to another friend of mine who's a filmmaker and I think Stone maybe, I don't know, we have to kind of figure out his third chapter here, this recent you know period. I don't know what he's been doing, but, but I think he's, the book makes it sort of reasserts his claim as an important artist in that period in the 1980s and early 90s. So and it's a great read. So that that that's been that's that's what I got to offer. All right. And I believe the book is called Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing and Surviving Platoon Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador and the Movie Game. Really, they just wanted to shove in all those titles for SEO purposes, I think. <laughs> um, but that's Oliver Stone's uh, autobiography. Thanks to Jesse for sharing that with us. Uh, and this week, I want to recommend a podcast that I've already recommended in the past, but it's just wrapped up. It's Truth Versus Hollywood, a podcast I did with Joanna Robinson about uh, movies based off of true stories and whether or not they were actually truthful in their retelling and why. We heard from experts and other people who were involved with the true stories, and we just had our finale episode about American Gangster. Uh, I'm very happy with how the show turned out, and I hope you've had a chance to check it out. Again, the show is Truth versus Hollywood. You can find it wherever your podcast can be downloaded. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Culturally Relevant. Again, find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email us at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at crevshow, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. This episode was produced and edited by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. Uh, one of the best podcast management and analytic services out there. Check out simplecast.com. They're awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Culturally Relevant. We will see you next week.